This is Near Dark Radio. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Near Dark Radio. I am your host, John Gower, and I am joined today by Mr. Blake Smith. Blake, how are you doing? Uh, I am thrilled to be here. Should I call you doctor? No, please. Okay. Well, that being said, Blake is a Harper Schmidt Fellow at the University of Chicago. He is an historian of modern France and literary translator focused on Francophone writing from South Asia. He is a regular contributor to Tablet and many other publications besides, including Breitbart. That is a joke. Um, I am very excited to have Blake today because since I started this podcast, I have wanted to discuss Foucault's, that's Michel Foucault, for all of the uh, bright young people out there, French philosopher from the 70s and 80s and 60s, and he had an interesting notion, interesting analysis of society through the lens of power. One of his sort of, I guess you'd say it was his neologism, his, his original idea was this idea of biopower. Biopower! I'm going to be saying it like that for the rest of the episode, so do not let that frighten you. Um, and you published a series of articles at the beginning and during the pandemic that did a very good job of showing biopower at work in society now. <laughs> what, how did you, so what, what got you onto this? Uh, well, you know, I, I wish I had a, a smarter kind of backstory to this, but I was um, teaching Foucault in the spring quarter of last year as the pandemic started. So like the quarter began in March as everything was shutting down and travel was being suspended. Right. And uh, I teach this year-long kind of great book style class that's supposed to be an introduction to the classics of social sciences. So, you know, we start off in the fall with like Adam Smith and Karl Marx, and then we end up with Foucault and postmodernism. And it just seemed like, well, since I'm teaching this stuff anyway, I might as well orient the class around what's happening. Um, so, you know, normally the class would have been uh, history of sexuality part one. Hey, which which we'll of course is is is, and we did end up we did end up reading because there's in fact a lot of biopower in that. I have to tell you the the thing that drew me to Foucault. I was literally walking through a bookshop in France, looking through the philosophy section. Had no idea who this person was. Saw history of sexuality, grabbed it. Said that sounds fun. Didn't even know he was gay. Come to find out several years later, all my worst fears came true. Well, right. I mean, uh, well, yeah, well, yeah, if you think about the end of his life for sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, in fact, this, 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 this is a, uh, perhaps a pointless digression, but uh, my introduction to him was yeah, also History of Sexuality Part One. And I imagine this is maybe, tr maybe this is the thing that most people get introduced to him through, mm -hmm. um, which I read like in the first weeks of college 
because I borrowed it from this guy that I was trying to hook up with. Uh, and then that was successful, and we, we, we dated for eight or nine years. So, you know, that was, oh, a, wow. it was a good investment. Yeah. But I remember yeah. at the time being disappointed that, in fact, there is hardly any, there's no, you know, there's no description of sex. There's nothing hot no, no, no. in the book. It's, it's about discourses. Right. Um, so, you know, that, that, uh, where was this going? Right. So, so, you know, so that's you, you were teaching that. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and so I thought, well, you know, we, we could, in fact, look more at his writings about public health, which, in fact, span his career. Um, so, you know, his, right. his first couple of books are about psychiatry and the medical profession. And then even at the end of his life, when he's, you know, more thinking about other themes, he has some writings from, like, 1983 about um, public health in the Western world today. So, I mean, for, for the 20 or 25 years where he's... Uh, professionally active, this is an important topic of his thought. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So biopower is a notion he comes up with. Um, I want to sum this up for people real quick. And you did a very good job of giving a concise definition in your, what is this? This is your article from Tablet from June of 2020. So that would, that would have been... Um, Lockdown and Punish. Uh, so there's, was that the n- there's uh, there's Lockdown and Punish, which was in the Washington Examiner, which is in fact about at the level of Breitbart. I mean, I shouldn't I shouldn't uh, uh, cast aspersions on people paying me money. Um, <laughs> but and then I I, th- I had I think in May this tablet piece called um, Biopolitics. Right, right. So you, I'm quoting you now from Tablet. Foucault laid out the basis of a new concept of power in the modern world, which he called biopower, or power over life. Since the 18th century, he argued, the state and other institutions have taken on an increasingly important role in managing life, that is, public health and personal well-being. Citizens, in turn, look to the state, medical professionals, legal experts, and a host of authorities to exercise what he called governmentality over their physical, psychological, and even sexual flourishing. So, we're going to spend a little time sort of unpacking what that means, what that, how that relates to life, especially in terms of the, the lockdowns and your articles about the lockdowns, which were everything that I was wanting to read over the past summer and only just stumbled across them a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> when Ross Douthat referenced them in a piece in the New York Times. Congratulations. Uh, well, yeah, I don't know how you feel about Ross Douthat, but... Uh, you know, my, my dream was always to be uh, not mentioned by name and then referred to via hyperlink as a, a strange right-wing uh, <laughs> whatever, whatever. But, you know, you know all, all press is good press. <laughs> right, right. He sort of cited you as like a fringe of the conservative movement that was suddenly getting aroused by the writings of Michel Foucault, and it was a bad thing. Well, I'm, you know, I'm sure Ross do that, uh, I'm sure knows something or other about being strange and right-wing, so this, this I should take it as a compliment. Sure, sure. Um, so let's, you know, d- d- st- start us off on this. So one thing you just mentioned and that you wrote in one of your essays is that Public health and liberal democracy are at odds with one another. And Foucault made that point 
I believe in his the 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 one published work that I never read the uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> the, what, birth what, the, the birth of the clinic yeah which is a, an incredibly boring and dense book and this argument that there is an important uh, contradiction between the premises of political liberalism and the the practices and kind of foundational assumptions of public health the idea that there's a, a, a real tension between them is present in that book, but it's not at all the most obvious theme. And even the obvious themes of this book are, are very difficult to get out. I mean, um, all of Foucault's early books, I feel like, are uh, written in a very difficult, like deliberately obscure sort of style. Right, they're dense. They're very dense. Um, yeah. But by the time he gets to the history of sexuality, he's sort of fleshed out this genealogy of power that starts back with sort of sovereign power in the medieval and renaissance period develops into disciplinary power and then we arrive at our modern state of biopower which i was surprised no one was writing about how we were experiencing at the beginning of 2020 the full, the most, you know, blatant realization uh, or blatant, um, what, proving, pr we proved Foucault, Foucault was proved correct that biopower existed because it exerted itself very strongly across the entire world. Right, and, you know, I think for, for most people, um, the issue was just that if only it were working as well here as it seemed to be working in, you know, uh, China, New Zealand, wherever. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I mean, the this is something that uh, Jeff Schulenberger meditated a lot in, a lot on in this um, American Affairs piece about Foucault that he wrote recently, which is what then Ross Duthat was um, citing in the right. New York Times piece. Right. That on on many many levels, it's strange that. Um, you know, if you're an academic or even an undergraduate student in the humanities and social sciences, you have a kind of basic familiarity with Foucault's ideas, you know, even to the point, um, you know, Jeff and I have talked on, on his podcast about this, like, weird moment in Obama's memoirs where he pretends to read Foucault to hook up with this girl. And, you know, this, so, you know, this has been my experience, Obama's Cringe. experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cringe. And From a president who is supposed to not have any cringe. <laughs> well, you know, college college is for cringe. Right, That's it what, is. You're right. Um, You're right. And, I, you know, I'm sure he, he was a good-looking man at the time. I'm sure it worked out for him, but he has to pretend that it doesn't so he can relate to us. <laughs> um, but, you know, America is versed in uh, Foucault's ideas in a way that it's not in, you know, Marx or Freud's or some other, um, you know, big historical intellectual of the 20th century or, you know, 19th. Um, but that did not seem to jump to people's minds to make sense of what was happening. Mm -hmm. um, and if anything, there was a you know widespread frustration with people uh, that so many, especially on the right, are not you know believing the science, are uh, right. insisting on their constitutional rights. Um, and well, do you think that is because Foucault was? a lot of Foucault's ideas were co-opted and distorted by the left and became sort of 
fertile ground for leftist thought. And by the time by the time the lockdowns hit, they had pretty much trimmed away any considerations of biopower or the dangers of st- you know I, I, I you know state control. I'm not even sure it's a question of being co-opted because in in here I I hate to find myself citing James Lindsay, but you know on 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 your podcast and then his other work he loves to pick shots on, across the bow, James. <laughs> he he <laughs> loves to pick on fat studies, right? Mm-hmm. Which in fact, uh, you know, other people like him who are skeptical of the way that the state has wielded biopower in the past year are in fact in agreement with a lot of the fat studies people, which is that there's a, a problematic use of state and non-state power to police and control people's bodies, to set up a norm of good health and then to control people on that basis. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, what's weird is... Are you now defending fat studies as well? I, I, am, I am not, I'm not, I'm not defending, but I'm, I'm saying that, um, you know, a, a wide range of people in the last 30 or 40 years um, on, you know, what we could consider like the left or these more kind of um, identitarian blank studies, uh, mm-hmm. academic fields, have been thinking a lot about how um, biopower works to set up certain kinds of physical ideals as also like, um, you know, moral ideals. So like there's the, there's the right kind of embodied subject. The norms, um, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then to critique the way that power is used to enforce those norms you know, both what the state is doing and what people are doing outside the state. So in this sense, something like fat studies or fat liberation, I don't know if that's, that has to be a term. I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm sure anything you can imagine, yeah, I'm sure yeah. also <laughs> is a thing. Um, that, in this sense, that is sort of a, a liberation from biopower. Right, so that's, that's the... I think there is a persistent fantasy across... Um, both sides of the political spectrum that there could be a liberation from biopower, uh-huh. which even Foucault at certain points um, kind of succumbed to. So, like if if you look at um, what he wrote about the Iranian Revolution in '79, he had this um, kind of unfounded hope that uh, like a a revolution founded in some spiritual religious ideal could overthrow all these structures of you know not just the military rule of the the Shah's government and economic inequality, but also all these institutions of biopower that control people within and outside the state. Uh-huh. Uh, now, of course, that did not really work out that way. <laughs> no. I, there's, I don't Hang think- on, can I, since you brought that up, I want to quote you because you're, you're also a fantastic writer, and this made me giggle out loud. Um, you were describing, yeah, Foucault's championing of the Iranian Revolution, and he's, you, you, I quote you, in October 1978, he assured readers of the French magazine Le Nouvel Observateur, nobody in Iran wants a political regime in which the clerics would have a role of supervision of control. By March 1979, nobody had seized power. Hermeni installed a legalist theocracy that brutally abrogated women's rights and began bloody persecutions of homosexuals, ethnic minorities, and the left. I loved that. Nobody had seized power. <laughs> well, yeah, unfortunately, I, I stole that from, like, there was a, a used car dealer growing up who uh, would, would cite other used car dealers' commercials where they say, nobody beats our prices, and then he would say, well, I'm the nobody 
that they're talking about. <laughs> so that, that, that was a little homage to, to that guy. Um, but where is this going? Right, so, you know, there, there's the fantasy that we could somehow avoid having these sort of um, health norms that then are instantiated in um, public health bureaucracies that are, that are uh, you know, uh, out in the, not just in politics, but also, you know, in uh, institutions of the media and culture. Right. I mean, for me, the, the most notorious example is there's this guy, Tim Dean, who's, I mean, I think he's a professor of English, but, you know, one of these people who does um, queer study stuff. And from like 2010, he has a book on barebacking. This is before prep. Uh, oh. Unlimited Intimacies where he tries to deconstruct the biopolitical uh, fear of resistance to uh, barebacking. Uh, and, you know, it's clear that he's like a participant observer in this subculture. He knows how Foucault died, does he not? Well, right. So, one, <laughs> there's that. Um, and, you know, he, he makes some gestures like in, in the introduction to say that he's not really out to valorize this, but it's clear that, you know, this is, and even in, in popular media, I mean, there are plenty of things like in, in Slate or, you know, other kind of left progressive um, cultural spaces like in the 2010 saying that like, um, you know, if you don't date someone who's HIV positive, you don't date, you know, a fat person, whatever. This is, right. this, and, and, you know, that's This not, is a moral failure on your part. This that, is an internalization of fascism on your part. Something like that. Yeah, and, and, and like the popular version of this would not be citing Foucault or talking about the word biopolitics, but there would be some sense that mm -hmm. this is participating in the enactment of, um, you know, a bad kind of normativity. Yeah. Um, and then the fantasy would be that there could be some real escape from that. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, but I think, you know, in, in Foucault's later work, like, you know, after the Iranian Revolution, so from like 80 to his death in 84... Um, I think the, the from AIDS, if you hadn't guessed, <laughs> yes. um, the shift in focus is well, how can we manage individually and collectively our relationship to governmentality and biopower so that we can kind of make do with the minimum of it? Um, uh -huh. Because so, for instance, like in in the '60s and, and early '70s, Foucault had been involved in the anti-psychiatry movement. Yeah. Um, also with people like you know, Deleuze and Guattari, where... He viewed, just to give kind of give people a better understanding of what biopower represents, the psychiatric institution is an institution of biopower, is an instance of biopower at work on people's bodies. Sorry. For, for sure. So, I mean, in, and especially back in the day, um, I mean, in France and in the United States, right. it was not so difficult for the state to... Um, lock people away mm -hmm. um, on on all kinds of bases, um, and in the Soviet Union, the example was really flagrant. You know, once once the kind of Stalinist gulag system was not quite dismantled, but you know, um, moderated or toned down uh, after Stalin's death in the early fifties, then increasingly the Soviet state used psychiatry mm -hmm. to find an alibi to lock up political dissidents saying that you right. know they were like well you know you'd have to be crazy to criticize this system right uh, so I've, that's this is another point that you um i like there were so many things that you were saying in these articles that <clears throat> i'd been starving for or not hearing said over the past year and one of them too 
was the this comparison between um, public health and totalitarianism. The Soviet Union, like you said, used psychiatry to claim that those who opposed Stalinism, those who opposed the communist regime, were in fact mentally ill and needed to be removed from society before they poisoned, poisoned the well, so to speak. The Nazis, they did not view the Jews as a, you know, a problematic... Uh, cultural component that was they 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 literally view them as a public health crisis it, 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 exactly that, and that even, had even, to be taken out even the the term biopolitics i i think it's it's been attested that uh foucault takes this up from um the early 20th century uh, there's a kind of german philosophical and political movement called Lebens philosophy so like life philosophy um, and uh, that, that's in the background of the Nazis who uh-huh. did not understand what they were doing as purely about uh, death and negativity and destruction but saw it really as promoting life which is right. why you know they have uh, these strength through joy programs to, to get people working out and and why you know even if there had been no Jews or Slavs or other people that they're killing um, they were of course Killing and sterilizing hundreds of thousands of Germans for you know um, hereditary health problems yep. or for you know perceived mental defects, with the idea that this is purifying the life stream. Right, we're, we're right. making a better race. Um, so it's understood by them as something positive, aiming at improving collective health. Um, now, on the one hand, you know Foucault, I think makes a really powerful and, and important move that then is followed up by people like Agamben, where he's showing that although, of course, there are important political differences between Western democracies and Nazi or Soviet totalitarianism, the kind of infrastructure of psychiatry, the medical profession, uh, those, of course, look quite similar, right? Like a, a right. hospital or an insane asylum in the Soviet Union, in Nazi Germany, in the United States, are all exercising power over their patients or exercising an influence in society at large. Um, and you can even take it out of the medical profession. Public housing looks very similar in the United States and in Soviet Russia. Low-income housing, um, college dorms, they all have the same aesthetic. Well, right. In, 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 they serve uh, the same purpose. Right. There's, there's probably like a universal uh, cinder block structure that you could <laughs> write the history of. Um, Plato had one floating up there in the in the heavens, and and and, and they we, all drew we, on it. We have realized it. Um, so on on the one hand, there's this troubling similarity in the the kind of uh, we could say the biopolitical infrastructure. So all these institutions that are practicing biopolitics mm-hmm. end up looking the same, whether or not the government is elected. Um, and indeed, I mean, we saw during COVID, basically all countries did more or less the same thing with different levels of seriousness or competence or, or whatever. Right. Um, but there didn't seem to be dramatically different approaches. Um, now, con- conversely, like, you know, F- Foucault was originally seen by a lot of people in his early work, and, and maybe this is genuinely what he thought, um, that, for instance, for psychiatry, like, it would be a question of doing away with psychiatry, doing away with the distinction between... Um, the sane and the insane. Right. Now, that doesn't seem very desirable. <laughs> no. uh, so then, no. then, then the challenge is if we accept that there are important distinctions between the sane and the insane, between the healthy and the unhealthy, um, and that these are not just like individual problems, because like, you know, if you have 
COVID or AIDS or you're crazy or whatever. You know, this is not just like a, a you problem. This, this is a, potentially a me problem. This yes. is an us problem. Yes. Uh, there's chances of infections. There's violent outbursts. Yeah. And there's, so there was, it was interesting. I saw at a film festival a couple of years ago a f- documentary on the post mental, f- state mental hospital crisis. And it was a, uh, it essentially pointed the finger at the Reagan administration and the conservatives for dismantling the state public health infrastructure and thereby, you know, either burdening families with all of the, me- the mentally ill people that were in their family or uh, pouring homeless people out into the streets to live in tent camps in Los Angeles and San Francisco. What they did, and I asked I, after the after the screening, there was a little Q and A, and I asked the director. I said, you know, what you you seem to point the finger at con- the Reagan or Reaganites and conservatives. The what about the Ken Kesey folks? What about Foucault? What about the left that was screaming about the not only the the fact that you had this biopolitical. Um, categorization that was outside the norm that we have to exclude, but also that they were torturing people in these facilities. And he said, yeah, well, no, that was part of the problem. That, that was part of the movement as well. And so, yeah, I, I, I was, since seeing that, I've, I've wondered, like, how do you have spaces for the mentally ill or, you know, whatever it may be, without resurrecting the old problems of the state health institutions. Well, right. In, in, I mean, indeed, um, you know, uh, so, so I guess two things on this point. So, yeah, one, there's a, you know, now I think a growing tendency on the left to see Foucault and other people of his um, generation or his kind of intellectual world as neoliberal, as sort of paving the way for um, Reaganism or the, the kind of California ideology. Um, <sighs> and it's it's true that, you know, now certainly uh, there is a kind of dominance of, uh, you know, you could see it as, yeah, California, Silicon Valley, a kind of um, ideal of individual self-realization that goes hand in hand with the dismantlement of the welfare state um, and massive income inequality. Um, you know, the... I'm not quite sure what Peter Thiel's actual politics are. They, you know, he funds all kind of weird shit. Um, but you know, the, 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 these kinds of uh, fantasies out of which someone like him emerges. I'm pretty uh, sure it's just pederasty. I think that's what. <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't even know into. if he's fucking them, boys. I think I think he's using their blood to stay immortal. That's that's, <laughs> that's, uh, that's right, right. You know, uh, it's internalized pederasty. He wants to pederast himself. Is that a verb? Know, get that get, the, get that underage blood. You know. Right. Um, and Peter Thiel, if you're listening, I'm sorry. Please, I will take a check. Um, <laughs> where, where is this going? We um, will clear your name <laughs> for a price. That's right. That's right. I'll, I'll, I'll delete the tapes. Um, <laughs> and, you know, there, there's some truth in that. But then, of course... The, the idea that the, 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 the Foucault idea, sort of... The idea that the, this critique of psychiatry, public health, these other institutions of, of biopower... Uh, facilitated the 
rise of the new right in the 70s, 80s, and, and its uh, dismantlement of the welfare state. And, you know, now in the U.S. we kind of have the worst of both worlds because we had a very heavy-handed and authoritarian exercise of biopower over the last year, but also... Um, very little safety net. Right, So and, and just kind of massive incompetence on a local level of public health. So, I mean, at one point, like, you know, here in Memphis, one of my stepbrothers had to get a COVID test and it took him a month to get results from, you know. No, that's just... So, which, so you know... So, Springfield somehow, never had COVID tests. <laughs> well, then... We so were... You, we, it didn't exist. That's right. You can't, you can't have COVID if you don't have COVID tests. Right. <laughs> um, so there, there, there's some... There's some truth in that, but I think also, you know, Foucault's work hits us toward um, like a more fundamental problem. He has this concept, which is sort of the origin of biopower, like the sort of concept that's the ancestor of the concept of biopower in Birth of the Clinic, uh, where he talks about medical consciousness, which is the mm. idea that at a certain point, you know, you could say the 18th century. I mean, you could you could debate historically when it is, but he's he's saying the 18th century, um, at least in France, there is a notion both among the political leaders and maybe more broadly um, among the, the people who are making decisions or who have influence that uh, there is such a thing as public health, right? Because it, uh -huh. it, it wouldn't have been obvious for most of human history that uh, the state or other people who are in a position to, to make influence and have decisions should be aware of what the health of most people or the average person or everybody in society is like, right? Right. I mean, you would have known that... Let them eat cake. Yeah, you, 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 you would have known that you're sick or healthy. You would have known if there's like a plague this year. But beyond that, you would have had no means of knowing. Like, you would have known enough to quarantine a city, for example. Right, like if there's an exceptional disaster, okay, we should do something. Um, but there would have been no desire or attempt to you know find out well what's the what's the average life expectancy right um, or birth rates or percent of people with diabetes or what yeah whatever so the emergence of statistics in the 18th century you know like the state's attempt to track all this information comes out of an emerging desire to track this thing that is coming to be understood as public health right that there is a collective health that we all share um, and that we need to gather information about it. And then, of course, if you have information about something, that also allows you to perceive it as a problem, to manage it as a problem. Right. And once Which is an important point with Foucault. Power and knowledge are nearly one in the same and that they continually reinforce one another. And that's right. I mean, just, just knowing, for instance, that um, you know, there's an un unemployment rate is a kind of invitation to do something about that. Right. right. And right. then whether from the left or the right, the, the answer is like more or less taxes or more or less government intervention. The, the fact that the state assembles this piece of information is then already a kind of invitation to power to do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, and as you, moving to, bio, like, as Foucault's notions of biopower sort of came together, he noticed that you know, with public, with the mint or the medical consciousness, you started viewing rather than the individual as a target of power, rather than the body as a target of power. You states began looking at populations yeah, e as exactly, targets of exactly. power. Yeah. So I mean, if if you look at um, security territory population, 
you know, he traces the a series of lectures that he gave at the Collège de France in some year. I, yeah, I, 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 I want to say 76. You know, I, don't, 76, I don't know if that's right. 76, 77, late 70s. Uh, um, but you know, he traces this through, through thinkers like um, Francis Bacon, who's one of the first to, um, this is the early 17th century, so he's really a, like a forerunner here. He's one of the first to propose that you know, the state should be counting how many people there are. And you know, he proposes, like, well, if you have too many people at a given moment, you should start a war to get rid of some of them. Wow. So, you know, uh, of course, as soon as you begin collecting this information, like, you're immediately going to be doing something with it. This is fine. Anthony Burgess. Are you, he's, uh, he's the guy that wrote A Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote a very funny book about a near-future overpopulated Britain in which, you know, abortion... Women were paid to have abortions. Um, it, the propaganda slogans were, it's, it's homo to be sapiens, or it's, it's sapiens to be homo... Um, and then, of course, they started a fake war to kill. They, they were just shooting it in a theater at each other, essentially. Oh, see, that's, that's an even better idea than Francis Bacon had. You don't even have to actually send people away No, to no, no, war. you just... You just, you just, just yeah. kill them at home. Yeah. But, um, sorry. Anyway. Um, but, but, but Foucault gets the idea from this that, right, we're experiencing with such ideas an important shift away from a state that is... Um, interested primarily in a physical territory or in setting laws that would kind of apply to indifferent indifferently to whoever lives in the country you know i say like you know people shouldn't steal if you steal we'll kill you um i don't need to know really much about who is in my country or how many people there are right. in order for that to apply right i have the law i have a physical space that that law applies in and if i catch people stealing i kill them right, right. um but with the notion of population, then we're saying, well, what matters for the state and then for all other kinds of institutions that might be exercising power over people is not so much uh, a physical territory, not so much a general law, um, and not so much you as a specific subject. Are you, you know, following the law? Are you, you know, a good person or a bad person? Uh, but how many people are there and how are they relating to each other in such a way to form kind of one organic unit that has um, good or bad public health. That right. also we could think of, you know, the, the economy is is coming into being at the same time as a concept, right? Like how I is, was just about to say, yeah. How is the economy? I mean, and now we have all kind of bizarre levels of abstraction, so we can say, like, well, what's what's people's confidence in the economy? Right. And we can measure that as yeah. yet another yeah. kind of yeah. globalized abstraction. Because you have this, you know... We've, I think we've done a pretty good job establishing that you know public health, the medical field, the psychiatric field are all examples of biopower or institutions that exert biopower over populations. Economics is a very important other role because it's biopower is also concerned with the circulation of goods and services, the circulation of traffic in a city, the circulation of it's almost it's almost like viewing the population as a body and the blood the the people and the goods and services need to be flowing well and regulated doesn't need to be flowing out of control because you know a street a street is a good place for people to move up and down move goods up and down also a great place to get raped in the middle of the night and we don't want circulation going out of control we need to keep it regulated 
That, that, that's, that's right. As the fiber commercials say, you know, uh, staying regular <laughs> is very important. And <laughs> we, we can think of, you know, the state and all these other institutions as being concerned with maintaining the right kind of intensity of these flows. So, like, you know, George Bush telling people after 9-11 to resume shopping. Right. right. Now, that, that, that's, a, that's a very strange kind of imperative in terms of, uh, like, the law or the state's territorial integrity. But if you think about the state being there to ensure the regularity of life... Right, yes, yes. And, and even terrorism, we could say, is, is biopolitical in the sense that um, the point isn't so much to kill X number of people, because the, the number of people killed by terrorism is always going to be pretty, you know, pretty trivial compared to the yeah. number of people that actually are. And it's not to take over the state. It's not to impose a new law. No, but it's to change the way people live their lives. That, that, yeah, and, and if we think of yeah, terrorism as existing to promote terror, you know, so, right. so some kind of uh, feeling of fear, then, yeah, the, at least the way that terrorism was understood by the Bush administration, the claim was they want to make us afraid, they want us to change our lives, so we will continue shopping, and that will be the proof that everything is fine. Yeah, yeah. And Foucault, so Foucault noticed this, in he he planned a series of lectures called the birth of biopolitics again late 70s and he did like two lectures on sort of developing this notion of biopolitics and then he just essentially starts um analyzing the austrian and chicago school of economics which we know today as neoliberalism reaganomics globalization um, all of the horrors that that's brought, and and the good things, um, and it's it's interesting because it's it's almost like he realized our our way of governing, like you mentioned earlier, the word governmentality. Foucault means that in the broadest, most general sense. How is the population governed, whether that be a state, whether that be a corporate entity, whether that be you know a, a priest or a pastor or whatever? How are people governed? We've gotten to the point where we're so we've we've used economics as a way to govern so that we're so hands off. Like violence is very, 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 very rarely exercised by the state or by, you know, powers in order to govern the population. Physical contact, very rarely used. It's through economics, economic incentives, scarcity, surplus, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how sort of, I mean, he, it's, it's funny that he sets out to describe biopolitics and he says, oh, well, someone's already done it and his name is Hayek. Oh, well, and, <laughs> and you know, I was just reading this morning that um, there's some, of all things, like a, a punk concert somewhere in the U.S. in, in the next few days that is uh, selling tickets for $18 to the vaccinated and $1,000 to the unvaccinated. For so, Christ. <laughs> that's so punk. Yeah, that's right. Isn't yeah. that so punk yeah. to N take your goddamn shot? New liberal biopolitical incentives are very punk. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this is a kind of neoliberal solution in quotes to our problem which is that you know we are in our political tradition at least historically maybe less so uh very attached to liberal values of individual freedom and autonomy and choice which 
rub up very uncomfortably against uh, all of these political ideas of population and governmentality um, that we've been talking about. So, I mean, it's very hard to have a functional public health system or a welfare state that is respecting the individual rights that we're attached to. So mm -hmm. we have a kind of series of workarounds where we might use economic incentives or we might use concepts of economic choice um, to sort of muddle through that. So, you know, right. I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard over the last few weeks, you know, the way people talk about masks as like, well, that's a personal choice. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can you can do that or not. This is the, this is what we're moving into. You know, the summer as the mandates lift, and of course that doesn't actually make any sense. Yeah. Um, if if what we're talking about is um, a disease that spreads from body to body, right? Regardless of people's will, uh, you know, your choice about the mask could put other people in danger potentially. I mean, you know, bracket. I'm I'm not an epidemiologist. I have no idea how effective they are or not, but but it, at least well, it would, it, even Fauci was a, <laughs> it's kind of, turns out was didn't really know what he was. <laughs> that's about that's there. right. Yeah, the the so uh, uh, the science has moved in a lot of different directions, but in principle, that makes no sense. to Talk about this right. as choice in the same way that you know to to talk about abortion as choice makes no sense because you know either either it's uh, a perfectly uh oh legit, uh oh well, girls just, just either it's a perfectly legitimate act because you know the the ontological status of the fetus is not that of a human being or it's it's a kind of murder right so the right. The, the, the legitimacy depends on well what do we think about the the status of the fetus yeah. that's difficult and touchy so if we can use the language of choice and say, well, it's, it's an issue of bodily autonomy. Right. Everyone has the right to do what they want with their body. And, of course, everyone, that, 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 everyone does not have the right to do what they want with their body. And we all, we all know that thinking deep down about it. Sure, yeah. With, as long as you're not harming another. But both of these are examples of situations where you doing whatever you want to with your body might harm another. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying we need mask mandates back. I'm definitely not on that side of the fence, but it's interesting because the there was a uh, a lady we mentioned this on the show last week or a couple of weeks ago. We didn't do a show last week. So sorry everybody. Apologies. I was it shut up. You get what it's a free show. You get what you pay for. This woman uh she owns a hat shop in Nashville and she made little um badges that were the star of david that said not vaccinated on them <laughs> good for her right good for her. I, it, I thought it was hilarious uh she got in a lot of hot water as you can imagine and you know the idiots on the it, it, that that go out and protest whatever the hell because they don't have anything better to do we're saying like she's an anti-semite for that and it's like well no to say it's in poor taste fine but it's not anti-semitic and she, the one of the news organizations contacted a uh, female rabbi in Nashville who was, you know, a very progressive rabbi, I think, even though she still supports Israel. So it's one of those situations that I love. Um, but she, her comment was, look, I'm sure this comes out of a place of ignorance. And actually, when I first saw this, I saw a woman expressing her bodily autonomy. And as a pro-choice advocate, oh I love God. to see a woman advocating her. What what a galaxy brain take! Good right, on her. No, it was, Good it on was, both of these ladies. I was ladies. like, ah. Oh. 
vindicated by a rabbi, a progressive rabbi. So, but that's funny. That is just like, yeah, the bodily autonomy question. The it's it's the individual trying to get away from biopower and when you start really looking at it that way you come you you come out on very different your your political situation gets very troubled <laughs> and that, that yeah and you know it may be that in practice that kind of language of bodily autonomy is the best that we can do to reconcile this tension because of course you know i i would think that let's say 90% of Americans think that individual freedoms are very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and for instance, uh, probably less these days, but, <laughs> but a, a large but declining percentage of Americans think right. that individual freedoms are important. Um, but right, we are also uh, aware of the ways that you know, we're never just an individual. We are, of course, always acting on each other and, and relating toward each other. And I mean, this is this is one of the problems, even in free speech. You know, we could, if we think about the way that uh, debates about free speech in recent years have, in fact, referred in a weird way to the value of life. Right. So, you know, often if I'm objecting to something that you're saying, I'm not just going to say that um, such views shouldn't be aired in society or that they're immoral. Or, um, you know, it, it, it's it's people who are targeted by this who will say, oh, that's political correctness. But the people who are being censorious usually don't talk about politically correct. They talk about, um, well, that's a harmful view, right? right. Your, your view is somehow causing trauma to other people. It's hurting other people. Mm-hmm. And Or in the, you know, in the worst case, you're organizing a population that is going to do physical violence against people. That, that, that's right. So, like, you know, uh, I'm, I'm emotionally hurt, and also you are inciting hatred that then uh, is contributing to some shift in the discourse that could lead to physical violence or that, you know, legitimates ongoing physical violence. Um, but there is this notion that there's, like, a direct connection between speech and life, you know? Like, so what, what you're saying has a direct impact on my life and then also on our collective life um, because the opinions that you air are, you know, going to contribute to like the general opinions that people have, which are going to lead directly to practice. Uh-huh. And of course, there is a there there is a connection, of course, between what people say and what people do. And you could say something that would ruin my day and make me feel very sad and, and whatever. And <laughs> well, I was just about to. But, uh. <laughs> please, please do not. Um, you know, we're all very fragile after last year. Um, right, right. <laughs> but you know, the the kind of typical anti-woke, anti-politically correct, liberal, defensive free speech is to pretend that there is, in fact, a separation between speech and life. Right. right? That, that, you know, words can't really hurt me, um, that every opinion should be tolerated, and of course we don't tolerate every opinion and, you know, we never will. Um, well, I mean, legally you do. Like, you, uh, there's very few exceptions. Like even the ACLU would defend, well, well used to, no, that's right. used to defend the rights of Nazis to march through Jewish neighborhoods. But but we needed groups like the ACLU. I mean, that was, I think, always the, on the one hand, the value of free speech is broadly recognized by most people or, or has been. Um, but the really rigorous defense of the principle, I mean, that's something that like 
50 lawyers at the ACLU before it got ruined. Only those right. people would be, really be upholding that. And, you know, historically, like when, whenever there's a war, say, we would recognize that, well, people's right to bodily autonomy disappears because we're going to draft them. Mm-hmm. Um, people's right to freedom of speech disappears because, you know, you can't be publishing dangerous opinions or information about troop movements. Um, right. And, and a point that... Well, Foucault, yeah, keep going. A, a point keep that going. Foucault and Agamben, um, you know, one of his kind of successors, have both uh, made is that increasingly the, there, there's no longer uh, a kind of period of normalcy in which we have our liberal freedoms punctuated by crises like wars where we declare an emergency and say, well, right. from, this, from this date until victory, which will look like X, Y, and Z, we will, we will suspend freedoms. And yeah. we, we will vote, for instance, to go to war, and then at the end of the war we'll vote to return to normal. Um, yeah, Mike, so I did get a little bit into some of the thinkers that developed on Foucault's notion of biopower. Um, two of them that co-authored sev- a series of books um, are Michael Hart and Antonio Negri. That, that, I feel that, like I'm about that, to say that seems a, correct, yes. A, you're getting close to racial slurs, the, <laughs> the Italians with their names. Um, but they, they note that um, biopol- like what they call biopolitical production is a... This is sort. This is a paraphrase. It's a shift away from policies informed by constitutional guarantees, and towards interventions that follow the logic of a police state, which function according to states of exception, like emergencies, crises, and operate in the name of a higher ethical principle. So, you know, you could imagine, you know, let's to kind of get away from COVID because that's such an obvious biological example, but like. Um, say you 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 had to just stop this f- speech. You had to stop the sp- the speech of president the president of the United States on Twitter, which happened because of the hate. That's appealing to a higher ethical principle than the Constitution. Yep. Yeah. 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 And 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 it's and that's the justification for it. I don't think that's a good justification, but. That's this the, the the sort of biopolitical usurpation of what the Constitution, yeah. But what, the yeah, liberal what, order. One of the things that you know Foucault points out is going to be difficult about, and and um, maybe Agamben even with more clarity, um, is going to be difficult about resisting those kind of imperatives. Is as much as most of us might be attached to political liberalism, although again, maybe decreasingly so. Everyone agrees that life is great. Everyone and and increasingly, you know, in like a, a secular world, uh, people see, might see life as the highest value, and not mm-hmm. a particular kind of life, or not life in service to um, some specific cause or purpose, but life in general. Um, so that that seems like a very uh, consensual kind of thing. Um, so you know, I mean. This is also a bit of California ideology, but you know we're we're all concerned about well-being and wellness, right? Um, right. And pretty much any kind of practice can be justified in terms of wellness. If you work for a big company, they're concerned about your wellness. They've got a wellness officer. They've got a fucking gym in the fucking sh- in the middle of the the office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 they've that, got smoothie bars. And and right. So both like the the sugary smoothie and the climbing wall like can be understood as contributing to wellness because wellness is like. You know what? What the fuck is it? Right? It's not. It's right. not having a certain body fat percentage. It's not. You know, 
having a certain serotonin level. It's it's a very vague notion, but it's also one that then can justify all kind of practices. Yeah. Um, both you know things are being sold and things that you know institutions might be doing, but also things that uh, the state might be doing. Uh, and if we see life and wellness and comfort as a kind of fundamental consensual value that we all share, then my speech undermining your well-being becomes very hard to resist. Like, you know, like right. re- referring back to the Constitution or referring back to individual rights uh, doesn't seem to have the kind of moral or rhetorical power that that ultimate value of life does. And, you know, not to sell anybody on, on Foucault uh, defending the Iranian Revolution, but... I think I think he was. I don't on, want us to have egg on our faces too. That's, that's right. Um, you know, the jury's still out on the on the Ayatollahs. <laughs> I, you know, give him give him another hundred years. Um, he, I think, was onto something in the sense that you n- might need something like an ultimate moral value that could be pitted against life. So, right. So part of what appealed to him about the Iranian revolutionaries was that you know one of their slogans when they were uh, confronting. The, the Shah's uh, forces in the street was, we are willing to die by the thousands. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in, this, in this tablet piece, which, by the way, nobody liked. I mean, you know, I, I've, I've never, I've never really? gotten so much uh, unanimous um, disagreement. Was as, that the, the one in just entitled Biopolitics? Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so everyone, run, don't walk to Tablet Magazine, Biopolitics by Blake Smith. <laughs> That's right. Get um, your panties in a wad. Actually, my listeners will not get their panties in a wad. They'll they'll probably enjoy it. Well, so you know, I, I argue in that that Foucault was really onto something in seeing that there is an inherent relationship between freedom, our our ability to resist all of these biopolitical imperatives where people are you know managing us on behalf of the value of life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we need to resist that then is to be able to say no to life. Right. Right? And not necessarily... Because, because the life that is being... It's... The powers that be are forcing life upon you in a certain sense. Because they're forcing a certain style of life on you. Well, and... and, and so, in, in fact, you know, I think this is, this is part of how, um, you know, in the early 80s, Foucault gets very... Um, invested in the idea of um, producing oneself right. and living as a kind of art through which one makes oneself. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I think there's there's a sense that you know whether it's a religious value that we place higher than life, or whether it's a sense that like I am only willing to live certain kinds of lives but not others. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to be able to say no to the value of like capital L life in general. I mean, one, one of the things that I really appreciate about um, Jeff Schoenberger's essay in American Affairs is that... What um, was, do you remember the title of that? It's not popping up. How, how We Forgot Foucault. How We Forgot Foucault by Jeff Schoenberger. Yes. Um, it's a mouthful, and his name is a, the Jeff with a G, not a J. Yes, yeah, it's a G-E-O-F-F. Right. Um, he, I think I'm... I'll link to all of these in the description. So wonderful. So, e- so either I'm remembering this from the article, or I'm just remembering something that occurred to me while I was reading it. But I think I think he he talks about the Terry Schiavo case, where 
you know, we can we can look back and think about instances where, of course, the right has also used biopower in this way of promoting really an abstract idea of life at all cost, right? Uh huh. Um, because you know, I mean, I have I I don't know the particular medical details, and I have no opinion on when it's appropriate to pull the plug on someone, right. yada yada. Um, but you know, then the argument for letting her go uh, was that well. That's not what perhaps she would have considered decent life. That's not what her husband, who was legally authorized to make the medical decision, mm-hmm. considered like a decent, livable life. Uh, but then the opposition to that was that, you know, all like life is always wonderful. Life, life, is life has a value. Yeah, yeah. Life is life is something that has to be uh, preserved and promoted um, under whatever conditions. Right. Which is like, I mean. One, no one actually believes that. Right. Two, that's a very childish notion of life because life only exists with death. Life is not something that is the opposite of death. It's, it's, they're the, they're one in the same, they're part of a process that it's, you can't, have one without the other. Um, well, and, and, and what I would say is, you know... I like my, how that song is about saying that you have to be in love to get married, and you have to be married to be in love. It's great. Um, um, but yeah, and it's... Uh, you, well, you were, you were t- sorry, you were talking about the, the, the... Like, life as it relates to lifestyle and well-being. And something that struck me when I was reading um, Christopher Lash last year was that he's, his critique of the elites and the way they sort of manage, like, we have this, this intense reliance on experts mm-hmm. in, to, to cope with almost every aspect of the human condition. Like, from the banal all the way up to you know, really intense shit. Like, there's child-rearing experts. There's diet experts that tell you what foods to eat. There's people that tell you how to make friends. There's people that tell you, you know, how to plan your finances, how to organize your household. Marie Kondo is running around telling you how to throw things away. It's like, not only is there an elite class burrowing into all of the normal functions of life that until a hundred years ago, people just got on with. I'm not saying there weren't hoarders two, three hundred years ago, but it wasn't a problem that we all were worried about. I don't know. It, well, and, and it, there's an there's an odd affinity between the two, and I don't know if it, well, in, indeed, and you know, uh, Lash. If if you look on, I think most editions of History of Sexuality, there'll be a blurb from Christopher Lash on it. Saying really? how important because he was one of the first. See, I missed out because I bought it. I had the French edition. Well, see, that, that's that, that's what that's what you get for being fancy, right? Um, but if, if you go down to Maybe. Barnes and Noble, um, it it should be the case that uh, at least the the like the Verso editions that that used to be out there would have or vintage um, would have this bourbon blurb from Christopher Lash who reviewed it. I think in Psychology Today, like right when. Uh, the translation came out, okay. and he reviewed a number of Foucault's books as they were published in English. Wow! And yeah, there's there's a real affinity between them. Although, you know, one of the things that is interesting and frustrating about Foucault is 
Right. On the one hand, he's very critical of this whole um, infrastructure of experts in you know psychology, sociology, etc., who are uh, you know creating knowledge about how people are and should be, and then dispensing advice, and then uh, managing us through all kinds of institutions. And you know, I think, for instance, there's a lot of uh, Foucauldian critique that could be done today, thinking about how like if you work for um, well, it used to be just a big company, and now even like people I know in small offices, if you're on like the Slack channel, for instance, there there's this real kind of Foucauldian thing of um, expressing yourself all the time in this way that's visible to all of your coworkers, who are then commenting right. on you, uh, who are managing your performance. The incitement to discourse, uh, uh, the production, the the uh, almost what um, perpetual confessional. And, and, and a friend of mine, for instance, um, working in a, not, in a not very big office, um, was sort of reprimanded by her colleagues because they could see over the summer that she had not posted a black square on her personal Instagram. So there's this kind of regime of visibility and governance that, you know, used to be this would be something that, like, your, maybe your neighbors might exercise or uh, we might think an authoritarian government might exercise that's happening in the capitalist workplace. Right. Theoretically, none of this has anything to do with the money-making goal of the enterprise, but... Uh, no, but it, it has to do with another thing that um, uh, the, um, the, the post-Foucauldian uh, biopower theorists noted was that biopolitical reproduction is... There was, it, it's the blurring of the lines between economics and politics and culture to where they all overlap with one another. So like, not only do we have political economy, but our culture has been pulled into those processes and economics now become, like, you know, a capitalist workplace becomes a, a, a setting of moral dramas and ethical ethical confrontations and whatever, you know. That, that, that's right. So, I mean, part of maybe the increasing prominence of like an abstract value of life is that you know we used to have all kind of we could say fictions or myths where we might separate life into discrete spheres right mm -hmm. so you know well we don't talk about that in the workplace uh -huh. right um or there are certain norms of professionalism where certain topics are taboo certain ways of, of being and speaking are taboo um to allow us all to get along and, you know, increasingly the, the move is to, like, what's the phrase? Take your whole self to work, right? Right. Oh, um, God. I, so, I've never heard that before, but I oh, yeah. must want oh, to yeah. die. That's, that's the thing. Um, keep going. I'm grabbing this water. Which means that, uh, you know, we are subject to a kind of moral and political scrutiny in all areas of our lives in the same way. And in the same way, like, our, our happiness and well-being is suddenly of concern to... Uh, the human resources manager, or the you know the chief happiness officer, or right. wherever, like all, all because parts it affects your productivity, uh, ostensibly, ostensibly, uh, uh, ostensibly. And you know th this is this is um, a point that Foucault makes yeah, at various points in uh, his analysis of, of biopower that um, you know the new political and economic regime is, as you say, like interested in regulating flows and is interested in. Um, 
operating within people's bodies and psyches to increase their productivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, if we if we understand um, productivity as like this this uh, uh, primary goal, uh, then yeah, we might say, well, people are going to produce more when they're happy. People are going to produce more when they're not microaggressing each other and when everyone feels included. So you know, then I tend to do better while I'm being <laughs> microaggressive. That's right. I'm I'm, I'm I'm having the most fun uh, when I'm committing. <laughs> Uh, harm against uh, my right, colleagues, right. Um, which, which is why I have to be remanaged into a new kind of person. <laughs> um, if we have this as the kind of goal, then it's very difficult to rely on older notions of professionalism mm-hmm. to say, "Well, you know, we shouldn't do that. I don't want to talk about that. You right. know, I don't, I don't want to get therapeutic or political or whatever in the workplace." Um, there, there's, I think, a general kind of inadequacy both of liberal political norms and then also maybe these norms of professionalism to resist these imperatives. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even if you think back to 9-11, after which, like, that's really when Agamben became big on the, the academic left, when they were all using him to critique, uh, you know, the Bush administration and its, uh, you know, the Patriot Act and, yeah. and, and things like this. Um, well, of course, there was an enormous outpouring of post-Vicodian academic critique of the way the state was creating a no-fly list and keeping tabs on things that people were reading in mm-hmm. libraries and locking people in indefinite detention on based on secret, uh, unknowable grounds right. um, without declaring war and without having any clear objectives. And, you know, so all, yeah. all, all this stuff that people said at the time, uh, which was completely powerless and in, 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 in useless at, you know, constraining what the state was doing, and it's still there uh, doing all of these things. I mean, the COVID lockdowns are a great example of how we were powerless to do anything about it. There were no fly lists after the January 6th riots, which, if I hear another goddamn comparison between January 6th and September 11th, I'm going to shit. I guess that's not a... It's not a big, th- big. Threat. You're, you're going gonna to shit, shit at some point anyway. You know, like, but but it's like uh, you know they they make these comparisons to justify the security measures, and security is the ultimate goal of the biopolitical state, the biopolitical, not even state society, because corporations form a very important part of bio. Biopolitical societies. Uh, well, and and the, it's the you know commerce like so. What? Shoot, I was just about to move on to a. Um, I forgot where I was going. Continue, continue well, in that th- th- in that th- vein. Th- thinking of, of corporations, like you know, in some ways, um, things are worse than they were. Um, 20 years ago, and one of the things for me that still needs to be explained is like, you know, 20 years ago, uh, there were all the kind of illiberal um, security practices of uh, the American government, but then there would be resistance to that and critique of that by uh, the university, by people in the the culture industry, um, by this left that was, you know, reading Foucault and reading Agamben and reading Hart and Negri and, you know, these people. Um, and now, you know, the, for instance, with, with uh, you know, terrorism, to the extent that, like, the security state is now focused on, like, domestic terrorism or, you know, some idea about, you know, uprooting white supremacy, well, 
now they've identified a goal for these practices, which are still in place and you know are, are apparently not going anywhere. Um, and <laughs> that goal now puts them in alignment with the culture industry, with every major corporation, right. with the universities. Um, so, and and uh, you know, academics who fifteen or twenty years ago were critical of the security state now seem to be by and large lining up behind it and indeed you know performing their own kind of security operations <laughs> within the academy right policing each other and right, know, outing right. each other and uh, and this sort of thing uh, getting people fired getting people demoted um, so yeah let's before we fi- finish up good because if we, as we said before we started and there's a physical limit to which the body can perform on a podcast. Um, I did want to start talking about the culture industry a little bit. Um, how, how, because I, I, I think this is, if not a product of biopower, at least a very important element in our society that whatever you call by, like one thing, I've kind of gotten annoyed with the word biopower by this point because we, we have said it about a thousand times in the last hour. So well, no, I mean, and over the past few years, like it's just it sounds so like something you've re- that's coming out of a comic book at you, like biopower. It and, sounds great, right? It sounds like I should take a vitamin to have it. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, the, the marketing, marketing idea. Keep put a pin in that. Um, but the. The common phrase I hear used today is soft power. Mm-hmm. And they use that to mean, like, you know, economic sanctions against uh, a, a country that we want to, you know, you need to dress your, we need to dress, you know, no, that's the French word, dresser. Yeah, yeah, um, we, we, you need we, to, uh, we, we, we got, we got to in, influence you to be otherwise, you know, right. we got to, uh, yeah, sanction or, uh, yeah. You got to clean up your act. Yeah. Um, and the, Another way that we use soft power, another form of soft power, is culture. And what I see in America today is a very interesting, if not alarming, I would say alarming, at least for everybody else it should be interesting, that we're seeing a, a, a sort of infantilization of the arts and entertainment and information all across the board. And it's wor- it works very well. I, I don't know if you've watched um, Adam Curtis's, any of Adam Curtis's documentaries. I, I, I have not. And here again, this, this, is, uh, this is me being bad. I just have, <laughs> I, I guess I'm like in a social milieu where I'm just exposed to a certain level of Adam Curtis discourse. So I feel like I've already watched and then okay. can't, have, have not yet brought myself to actually watch them. But so I, you're aware of the, yeah. Well, the, the most, everyone refers to hypernormalization as like his great, the one that I encourage everyone, again, run, don't walk to YouTube and watch The Century of the Self because it is the history of the marketing industry, essentially, and how that uses psycho, psychoanalytic principles to affect the subconscious and, you know, really addict people to consumer items from the youngest age possible. And not only it's bled out from the marketing industry into 
everything into the culture. So like your music is no longer, you know, produced by some old guy with a cigar in an office and somebody plays him a demo from a band that's doing something weird and he's like, ah, yeah, fine, the kids will probably like it. It's now focus grouped and produced in a lab or, you know, the only people allowed in the door are the ones that the focus group has already recognized. This is what is going to sell. This is what is going to hook people. There are literal songwriting courses where you call a part of the song a hook instead of the chorus. It used to be called a chorus. Now they call it the hook oh, because mean, it's what hooks you. I, I hadn't even thought about yeah, the, like, that switch in terminology. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I see these forces, you know, when you consider that biopower is broadly an economic thing now. It's, well, it's, 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 a, it's an analysis of our economic process, of neoliberalism. And then you consider that economic processes determine the way we consume culture. Well, th make it so that we do consume culture because culture isn't necessarily something you're supposed to consume. <laughs> it's something you're supposed to experience. Now we're all consuming it because that's how they make a profit. That's how the wheels keep turning and the bus keeps rolling. I'm just wondering if we can find a way out of this before the wheels come off the bus. Well, one, I mean, if only the wheels should come off the bus. I mean, you know, like, you know, worse, worse than collapse, perhaps, is just this, the same forever. Um, <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's what people describe it as going to be. Um, it's just, this is the end of history. This is the vista. What, what, what's unfortunate is that, yeah, I think, you know, in, in Foucault's, like, last work in the early 80s, um, there's an emphasis on self-construction, which then is kind of a big theme of, um, you know, thinking in the academy in the 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. like the, the notion the of... The turn to ethics, the turn to aesthetics. Yeah. Right, and, and, and the whole notion of, uh, of lifestyle and of self-making. Um, and in principle, that could be a kind of site through which to resist biopolitics and to um, resist sort of uh, broad social norms and, and the practices of uh, governance that are supposed to put people in alignment with them. You know, if I'm cultivating myself as a certain kind of person, that ought to give me a certain kind of agency for resisting, um, you know, demands that are being issued from society or from, you know, the company I work for or from mm -hmm. my university, whatever. But, you know, increasingly... Uh, the resources that are available for me to construct myself are coming from the culture industry right. and don't really offer any space for resistance. So, you know, I mean, when I talk to my students, for instance, a lot of them, I mean, it's not like they have a, a thought-out theory of how culture works, but they all have a sense, uh, or, or many of them have a sense, that what culture ought to be doing is offering them Images of themselves, right? Images, uh -huh. images of people like them. Images that can inspire them or make them feel comfortable. Right. Um, so then there's this kind of counting. Well, are there enough people like me in this show? Is this something that is affirming and positive? Um, th there's a hmm. there's such a direct closeness that's imagined between my actual life and the the culture that I'm engaging with, whatever cultural products I'm. 
I'm, yeah, as you say, you know, if we, it, it's terrible like to be saying consuming and then like not even to mean that in a critical sense, but they, they would just be like, right. I'm consuming a cultural product. Yeah, right, like it, right. It, it's sad that this is the language, but um, that there should be like a kind of one-to-one correlation. There should be no kind of gap across which I'm having to think and interpret and figure out how this relates to me, but there, sh- there should be some me that I find in the cultural product that right. affirms me back to myself. And, and what Which we, is the age of narcissism. Right, right, right. right. And, that Christopher Lash talked about. And, and, you know, I think since Lash lived um, a decade longer than Foucault, uh, by the way, you know, everyone talks about you know, Foucault, Foucault dying of AIDS and this is, you know, somehow revealing something that's problematic about his thought. Although Christopher Lash died also at 60 just from smoking however many packs of cigarettes a day, you know. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't, uh, you know, whatever is critiquable about one in that sense is critiquable about the other. Right. Um, but I think Lash, since he lived, Impulse control. <laughs> since he lived through the 80s, he could also see the way that even that, um, let's say, neoliberal ideal of self-making just continues to empower this class of experts inside and outside the state, yes. and isn't really a grounds for resisting it. Now, I mean, I don't because I, the because the 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 corporate model is able to grab hold of those philosophies and begin producing goods for the production of the self. That's right, and so right, so I mean, corporations are. Like self-help books. That's right. So I mean, they're, they're making products, and then the corporations themselves, their governance changes such that human resources are now concerned about these issues, right? So, right. So both what they're and doing the, to employees and what they're doing what, to what, um, Yeah. What uh, 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 Adam Curtis pointed out in that documentary was that, you know, there was a, an interesting, you know, all of these, there's focus groups for all of this shit. They invite people in and they say, hey, we need your opinions about our products because the only way we're going to be able to make products that sell really, really well is if people tell us what they like and don't like about the products. And there was like a cake, the instant cake mix of the 50s when it first came out. It wasn't selling as well as they thought it would. And they asked some women to come in and, and they were like, well, it just feels like I'm not doing it, you know? And so they were like, well... They changed the recipe to where you had to crack an egg into the powder. <laughs> Sales skyrocketed. I loved doing that as a kid. I loved helping mom <laughs> cracking the egg into the brownies. But still, but that just that, just that little input and just that little change became, and when the the poison that we eat was flying off the shelves. Well, and you know, public opinion too is one of these categories, like you know, uh, public health or the economy, right? Where you know, once we think that there is such a thing as public opinion, this opinion that everyone participates in, mm-hmm. um, first, you know, we want to know what's the state of public opinion. So, yeah, what what do housewives think about the product? Which, but that immediately feeds into well, how can we manipulate this imagined object of public opinion? Right. What are the things that we can do to to reshape it to where it ought to be? Um, now, I, I mean, I don't know what you think about. Lash, I was like, yeah, also reading him last year because I guess everyone, you know, he was, he was having a moment. He did have a moment. Um, I think I read Scare podcast. I don't know if you were familiar with it. I, 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 I had, I, yeah, again, I am, I am, I am aware <laughs> of, I'm aware okay. of. Um, yeah. I mean, I would love to be making $10,000 a month for my, uh, well, my they're making a lot more than that. Well, now, you know, now it's just, <laughs> now I have to live with that. Thank Tim you. Dylan makes like $110,000 a month. And he still looks like that. On his podcast. And he still looks like that. And he's still... I would have sex with him. I've decided. I've decided. 
Um, my, my, my biopolitics is no fatties. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's my. <laughs> no I'm, fatties. I'm sorry, Tim Dillon. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, fatties. Uh, <laughs> where, where was this going? But, you know, so. so Public La- opinion. And, yeah. So, so, I mean, Lash kind of shows us that that strategy is not going to work. But then he sort, of, he sort of appeals to the values of a vanished past and, you know, a sort of. Um, the populist ethics of a 19th century everyman or something is our, is our resource for resisting. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean the, he does. And then, but he doesn't, you know, I don't think he, I don't think he is naive about it. I don't think he's saying like, everybody get back to church. He's saying, look, you need, we, we used to have these institutions, these community centers, whereby we held society together. We need them again. It may not be, you know, Catholicism or the Church of Christ's, but it needs to be something, and it needs to have meaning for people. And Jordan Peterson saying the same thing. The, um, the you know, Hart and um, Negri are saying something very similar with, like, a return to patriotism. Not in the sense of love of one's nation, but love of one's community and people, and not not in the not in the racist sense. We're not we're not talking about your people. We're talking about the people around you, the people in in your vicinity. You know. So, but yeah, in in whatever form, um, there have to be some kind of attachments that we have and some kind of cultural resources that are available to us through which we could resist the imperatives of biopolitics through which we could resist the demand uh, for life in the abstract, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if, if the threat is always like, well, of course you have to stay inside forever and wear a mask forever, otherwise you're, you're going to kill someone's grandma. Um, you know, there has to be something other than just our constitutional rights or right. uh, our individual freedom that we might appeal to to make understandable to people that you know uh, there there is something other than the value of life around which we have to organize our politics and our practices. Now, of course, we could we could do something even worse than that, as the Iranian Revolution shows us, right? Like we could <laughs> we could we could pick a value through which to resist biopolitics and then just do an even worse kind of politics. Right. Um, well, no, and one thing that Jordan Peterson mentions is responsibility. And I do think that is actually, for me, it's proven very helpful because when you make yourself responsible to someone else and you follow through, you, f- you get positive feedback. You feel better. You have a sense of accomplishment. You feel like you've done something meaningful, whether you made money from it or not. You've, and the other person, you know, you ha- you've deepened your relationship with that other person. And I don't know. I mean, for people listening to this, I think that's one step. If you're if you're living in some godless hellscape and you're everything's bleak and you're trying to get out, start making yourself responsible to others. In like you know, say you'll help somebody move. Say you'll watch their dog, what the hell ever, and then do it. Well, yeah, for instance, I mean, you know, we're, we're used to, on the right and the left for a long time, thinking about, like, personal responsibility. Um, mm-hmm. 
And you well, know, that's what the Peterson talks about that too. But it's yeah. But but responsibility toward others and not toward others like abstract all of them, but toward specific other people. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think yeah is, is a is a more useful kind of moral resource because yeah we have all internalized these weird sort of. Um, uh, the sense of responsibility toward like self development, right? So like well being is not just a, an ideal of health, but also like well I ought to treat myself. I ought to do. Th- I uh. ought to cut tux- toxic people out of my life. I ought to do. X, oh, y, when and you Z. say it like that, it makes me. Uh, well, uh, well, the in, bile rises in my throat. In, in, yeah, indeed. So I th- ought to treat myself. No, you you <laughs> ought not. Um, Sorry. So <laughs> you know that that feeds directly into the kind of narcissistic. Uh, uh-huh. complex that Lash was talking about, the sense that like my my ultimate ethical obligation is toward like my myself and managing yes, myself. Yes, yes. Um and of course, you know, from his perspective, if we're like in a church or in a union or in some, you know, tight knit neighborhood, those are uh kinds of responsibilities toward other people. Foucault, you know, toward the end of his life is interested a lot in like ancient Greek philosophy and the early Christians and the way that like there are relations of like master and disciple in like a, a philosophical context. So, you know, you're, you're like working with Socrates to, you know, develop the right kind of self or you're working with, uh, you know, the head of the monastery. Um, and on the one hand, these are potentially problematic relations of power. Uh, but and pederasty. Well, and, uh, that, that, that goes, <laughs> you know. Um, <laughs> I wasn't suggesting that kind of responsibility to others, but, you know. You know, it's, it's, it's a pedagogical relationship. You know, there's, there's, there's teaching and learning and growing. And um, we're canceled. Um, <laughs> but no. But, 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 you know, and as you point out, this too might be ultimately problematic and not useful and, and whatever. But I, I think that at least is something that is worth intellectually exploring is the idea that it's um, specific, concrete relationships with other people and responsibilities toward other people yeah. that might give us um, the moral power or the ability to um, convince others of the legitimacy of uh, resistance to these broad biopolitical demands. Yes, the impersonal demands made on us. I'd rather personal demands be made, even if they're, like you said, problematic or uncomfortable or what the hell ever. I'm sick of people. I think people have a, a like a, a new. This is new, but it's this visceral repugnance for responsibility to others. And like you know, if so, you just maybe we can get into that next time because I feel like I'm going to have to unpack that. But well, there there, there was a uh, I forget the title. It was a New York Times piece that everyone was complaining about a few days ago. That was like uh, how to curate your post COVID friendscape. Uh, right, and friendscape. Yeah. So you you have all these people in your life who might be um, dragging you down, who might be limiting your flourishing and and the end of covid is a great time the piece was telling us to sort of marie kondo your friend group <laughs> right so does this friend bring me joy no they're they're gone right out. right uh, and and i mean to a certain extent that is it's a great time yes to <laughs> cut trim the fat because right now we live in a society where people over the age of 30 seem to think that they have 150 friends no no you have like 5 tops the rest are just filler and you need to cut some of those out but you need to realize who your friends are and develop relationships with them don't just 
don't just have them around for you know the what the fair weather situations so yeah it's 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 true that of course the article does have a grain of truth which makes it even worse <laughs> <laughs> but that um somehow the the idea i i think that i have um some kind of non-negotiable responsibilities to specific other people mm-hmm. who um, I am unavoidably entangled with. Uh, th- that's, I think, I think, yeah, that can be a resource for a kind of moral thinking that lets us do the work of, of resisting biopolitics. I mean, maybe, you know, Maybe this is misguided. The Iranian Revolution maybe was worth a try. It didn't work out. We'll tr- we'll try friendship and uh, concrete relationships with other people. We'll see if that does any better. Yeah. Uh, and then you know we'll, we'll we'll report back afterward. We'll report back. Well, um, we are going to venture out from the lovely Peabody Hotel into the streets of Memphis and make some fucking friends. That's right. We're gonna we're we're gonna commit some problematic biopolitical activity. Yes. Decisions that, uh, well, we're going to kill some grandmothers is what we're going to do. Um, Blake, where can people find you, or do you want to be found? Oh, on- yeah, I, 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 I don't particularly need to be found. Uh, well, you can- your articles are great. I <laughs> That's mean, right. you, they you, truly are. You, you, you can see my work in Tablet uh, or the Washington Examiner or um, Foreign Policy. Uh, and then otherwise, you don't, you don't need to find me. Right, okay. So don't, don't bother him on social media. He's not even there. Um, and of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, we would like you to like, subscribe, do whatever the fuck you need to do, but pay us money. Go over to patreon.com slash near dark radio. That is patreon.com slash near dark radio. And you know, pay for this trip to Memphis for Christ's sake. Freedom is not free. Freedom is not free. (laughs) All right, Blake. Thank you so much. Thank you so much and for having me. Hopefully, we'll have you on again. Yeah. Maybe via Zoom. Ugh, what a drag. But um, yeah, you're the only person that's been able to do the Foucault with me besides James Lindsay. What a pair. Right. You've fallen into that category. So, all right. Let's go kill some grandmothers. Okay. Okay.